so thanks for coming. Thanks for the invite. So nice to see you. Yeah, haven't seen you in a while. I've been, well, I saw you at UDI at the holiday event, but so briefly. It's such a blur. I stand at the front door there and do the receiving line thing and then yeah. I go home. Yeah. <laughs> As part of your obligation from. Yeah. Being, yeah. Uh, we try to try to, you know, put, put a face of the board at the front door and say yeah. hi to everybody on the way in. And that was yeah. a big event, I think. It was the biggest one since COVID, obviously, that we had this year. Good turnout. It was huge. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was. I was really surprised how, how big it was. And I was double booked that night and didn't get to stay as long as I wanted. But I was sure glad I went. And did he make it to the U40 party after? Apparently, that was particularly raucous this year. Was it? Good. No, I, that's, I was booked. I, I didn't go at all. Right. Oh, okay. I'm, yeah. glad they, I'm glad they had fun. Yeah. But I think that's pent up sort of energy around COVID and not seeing each other. And yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, ICSC was meant to be really good this year. So I don't usually go to that. But um, apparently there was a great energy there this year. And a lot of the tenants were back as opposed to it just being kind of an industry event. A lot of the tenants were back meeting the reps. And that's what ICSC is supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. I heard the same. Yeah. And that I was up there too, but I had a board obligation and, yeah. and wasn't able to party, which is what that is all about. <laughs> Anyway, so nice to have you here because you are legend around here. You might not even know it. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> you were, when we were, when I was starting out so long ago, um, we were in touch and, uh, you know, lunching and coffeeing and, uh, right. and you were giving me, uh, your time, which was very kind and generous. Cause I was just a newbie and a nobody. Um, and you explained to me something that I never forgot. And I repeat here. Uh, regularly because it is one of my great challenges as an entrepreneur and it's related to my personal involvement in the projects right. and um, as an entrepreneur you know you build something and in some ways you think of it like a machine you know mm -hmm. something that can grow and right. and exist without you right a process a process for sure um, and part of that is true um, but you told me that, um, he asked me a question once. He said, you know why we developers hire your companies, don't you? And I said, no, actually, I don't. Could you please tell me? And, and he said, it's not for your $150,000 project director or your sales manager or any of those people. We can hire as many of those people as we want. Um, there are only four, maybe five people in the industry that we can't hire, that we want to have at the table, strategizing right. the success of these really big and important projects. Right. And you guys just happen to surround yourself with these development marketing companies. So that's why we hire your company. And it's been helpful because it's reminded me that, um, that that's my job partly, you know, right. and, and not to ever get too far from it. Right. Or, or it just becomes, there's a loss of confidence in it and, and, and for the developer, it's just a process now and they don't have a key, key person there at the table. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I've heard you talking to Michael Geller about this, that, 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 that there's just this kind of small stable and it is remarkable to, to, to us as well as, you know, development industry is so huge and there's so much product and so many sales being moved through the process, but you, you really have, I think you said four, you know, kind of key project marketing firms and, uh, it's, it really does, I think, tie back to that, that thing of, is, is there, is there a person there who really does, or, or if they don't really have a special talent, do they, are they able to convey a special level of confidence in the success of the outcome that the developer and, and, and the two bosses that you mentioned, the, the lender and the equity, are, are they going to be comfortable? Um, and 
I think for us, it's not quite that simple. I think for us, where we've worked with project marketers, it's been where we've seen a willingness to get involved very, very early on the engagement side in what I call product development and really roll up your sleeves. You know, we have a kind of a four-leg table that we have the architect, the developer, um, architect, interior designer, developer, project marketing company um, as equal constituents on the product development, on the floor plans, on the spec, on the design, on on innovation. And uh, to varying degrees, the project marketing firms do that. Some some more kind of swoop in at the sales time and just sell whatever the developers cooked up for them to sell. And others are much more involved in that early engagement. Mm-hmm. We love that opportunity because the way we look at it is it's just makes our job easier. Right. On the other end. When Success. It's designed, when it's right. designed properly. Yeah. And it's got a natural tension, you know, a project marketing may come in and start pushing the project product in a certain way that say is going to escalate costs for the developer and, and good for them. I mean, it'll make them easier to sell the units, make it easier to meet consumer expectations, but then the developer has to be there to kind of say, yeah, that that's, I can see why that's important, but we can't go quite that far. Um, and so it's, it's a really good and healthy tension in getting a, a product that's both, you know, innovative and interesting, but still works and will actually be able to get built, right? Yeah. Especially now with, you know, every decision uh, being so impactful on the cost side. Yeah, totally. So what do you, well, tell me for those of you who don't know, um, you know, John is uh, Reliance and uh, it's a huge name in the industry. Um but how did you get started in this work? Yeah, this is, I always get these uh, UDIU 40 people coming to me for mentorship saying, how do I get in the industry? What did you do? I said, just join a rock band. That's what you did. And, uh, that's what I did. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things where, where, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's lucky, lucky to be smart, but it's smart to be lucky. And uh, I, I just ended up being in a band with, uh, with uh, the son of the founder of Reliance, it's a, you know small started as a small family holding company, and I got to know him. And I was doing some. I taught myself to to program computers in the early '80s on the old Apple II, and then I started doing some accounting stuff because that's that's what, actually one of the first places that people went in business with uh, with microcomputers was was accounting systems. So I, I ended up helping this gentleman move his uh, accounting records from the old one right carbon carbon copy kind of system onto uh, onto a computer system and just I kind of it's like a recording studio guy who starts sweeping the floor right I just kind of worked my way up and learned the industry kind of on the job left a few times but you know ultimately ended up coming back to reliance and and you know running the company myself and my VP um, are the first uh, a first outside um, chief executives of the, in the history of the company, which up until then was just run directly by family members. Yeah. And we kind of took it from a, a sleepy, you know, holding company that had a, you know, real estate, just kind of opportunistic buying real estate all over the city, apartments, sold commercial buildings and so on, and sort of brought in the development layer. And then, um, it just grew and grew. And, and then I started getting really involved in, in the advocacy side of the industry, which has been very rewarding for me, but probably one of the most rewarding parts of the career, apart from the putting buildings on the map, but, um, you know, through UDI and getting super involved in policy and advocacy has been, has been a huge part of what I've done. In the advocacy stuff with UDI, um, I think, I think of you a lot about, I know it's for the whole industry, but you know, you were invested in Gastown, right? Like I am. 
And um, I really admired how outspoken you were about, you know, the policing issues and right. some of the issues that I have, um, you know, in the neighborhood every single day of my life. I know you own the building next door. We did, yeah. Until a couple of years ago. Yeah, until a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. um, it's starting with Gastown. I mean, it, and the policing issue got pretty tough here. It is tough. It's, right. It's a tough place to exist and not be frustrated when there's graffiti like a new doormat of graffiti in our right now yeah. in front of our front door. And, you know, I mean, from my point of view, having been doing this so long in this neighborhood, I mean, we first, we, we were invested in this neighborhood in the sixties, but we first came down here and put our office down here in the mid nineties. And so we've seen all the ups and downs of the neighborhood. I used to be the head of the Gaston BIA for years, the business improvement association. And we've seen Gastown have all these cycles from from i would say five years ago it was it was the number one premier neighborhood in the city in terms of food restaurants entertainment nightlife you know cool places to live great vibe and it's been like that before in the past and it's it's had its down times in the past before and right now because of covid because of the current philosophy towards street disorder and facilitation of non-social behavior um it is going through one of those low points um, but it's definitely starting to recover a little bit now. But uh, this is one of the deepest, uh, you know, deepest trouble times I've seen Gastown go through. Yeah, it's pretty painful. And yeah. sometimes I feel better when I walk through the rest of downtown and see that it's quite all over. I yeah. live in it right here, but it, it yeah. is all over downtown. Yeah. And, it, you know, the, the current, I mean, I'm, be, I'm being asked to participate in this debate uh, with the Urbanarium on, you know, should we change the policies in the downtown east side plan and i'm kind of like it's kind of a fatuous question at this point it's so beyond obvious that it's profoundly broken that uh it shouldn't be that conversation it should be you know what do we do not should we do something yeah it's remarkable to me that there's people who still think that the downtown east side policies are um are good and that if they didn't have those policies, it'd be even worse. I mean, it's hard to imagine. Which policies? You mean the ones that the whole, required- It's the downtown east side plan is yeah. this kind of uh, essentially a zoning or an OCP document that that in a nutshell says that um, any, it, it's not Gastown, well, partly in Gastown, but more so areas immediately east of Gastown that any new housing has to be, I think, uh, I think it has to be 30% social housing and 60% rental. Well, that's just a policy that's guaranteed to produce no development. And it, it, in, in my view, it's a cynical policy that's meant to keep land fallow, uh, like a farmer's field for, for social housing development when and if money is available. And so the neighborhood lives in this kind of, you know, purgatory of, of social dysfunction. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a very cynical approach to, to a very, very beautiful and critical part of the city. Yeah. I feel the same way. Just yesterday, twice yesterday, I saw two different uh, groups of tourists being toured through this part of the city. And I had these mixed feelings about it. On one hand, I thought uh, I felt good and proud that there was eating lunch in my neighborhood and happy to see this uh, our city being shown off by these pros. And um, I found it interesting that that this is, despite the condition of it right now, that this is still one of the most important neighborhoods in the city. Fantastic it's buildings. Oldest, and, it's yeah. most interesting. Uh, best stories about it, that kind of thing. And of course, I felt a little bit sort of worried and and almost like ashamed of the, the condition of it and wondered how the tour guides deal with, um, you know, the interactions or the stuff that they're going to see. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's sad too. I mean, the downtown east side in this most 
Hastings Strip, if, if you want to focus on that part, is in the most kind of not good way, has become a tourist attraction. Yeah. Let's drive through Hastings and, 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 and just see how truly bizarre it is, like going to a horror movie or something. Yeah. That's really sad, you know, when that yes. actually is so bad that it actually becomes something people want to see just to see how bad it is. It's true. You can have yeah. someone visiting from out of town that's heard about it and wants to see it. Yeah. And, and if they're from anywhere else, a small town especially, it just blows their mind what yeah. they see. Yeah. And we get used to it. Yeah. But that doesn't make it okay. No. So that's a big problem we got to solve as, as a city. And um, that's one of the tougher ones because it, it's, it's been allowed to develop over decades and reversing it is, is extremely difficult politically. Just about anything you do starts to feel like you're persecuting the most vulnerable people in our society. And it's a real tough one. It really is. And it's not a real estate issue. No. It's healthcare, social welfare related. Yeah, mental it's health. Just so yeah. mental health. Yeah, it's, it's just so layered. There are a lot of people saying the right things now, with, you know, both at the new council level and the province. And the throne speech talked a lot about safety and security and mental health resources. And everybody's saying the right thing now, but... It will, it'll, the proof will be in the pudding whether they can make any move, movement of meaningful, meaningful movement in the, in the quality of this neighborhood in the next five to six years. I remember you ripping on, um, police talking about your tenants not even able to enter their building. And, right. And, uh, you know, this was, this was valid and, and scary for tenants that were yeah. losing control of the entrance to their home. Yeah. And I didn't really, I wasn't really mad at the police. I mean, I remember being on a, on a, on a call with the police chief, the, the previous city manager, um, uh, the director of engineering, and, and, the, and the mayor's chief of staff, or it might have even been the mayor, past mayor. And um, we just laid out all this litany of issues that are, we'd done this beautiful building, micro suites at the corner of Hastings and Abbott, entry level housing, micro suites, you know, bottom rung on the housing ladder, rental, uh, young people having their first home, and uh, they literally couldn't even get in and out of the building, as you said. And, and, and I had this big meeting with them all. And they, they said to me, there's nothing we can do. There's just, there's just nothing we can do. They all had their excuse why they couldn't do anything about it. And the police were the most frustrated because the police just uh, can't act on that type of behavior as any kind of a misdemeanor or any kind of a prosecutable crime or ticket or anything. They just, it's so far below the threshold of, of, of engagement by the police at this point, that it's essentially a social issue. And ultimately that building was sold, um, to the province and, uh, at, at a crazy price. Crazy high or crazy, crazy low? high. Yeah. And, uh, the mayor's chief of staff at the time, uh, phoned me and he said, thank you so much for selling this building to BC housing. We need more people doing these kind of things and making these kind of decisions. And I said, seriously, we, we just sold a building that was providing entry level market housing to people with jobs and gig jobs and, you know, barely being able to put enough money together to have a, their first home. And they're going to all get evicted and we're going to move in people on welfare. Like not that the people on welfare don't need somewhere to live, but it, but it was, yeah, I see what you're saying. It was just displacement. Yeah. And on top of that, um, that building was going to be used for women trying to recover from addiction. And they were going to go in and out of the front door every day, having to squeeze by, you know, drug dealers, cluster of drug dealers. Like it yeah. just, it's so <laughs> profoundly nonsensical that you just yeah. kind of shake your head. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
So yeah, he started, he sold that one. He sold the one next door. Did you sell everything? No, I mean, we're still, we are still one of the larger property owners in Gastown. And, um, but I, I never thought I'd say this, but I, I would not buy a building in Gastown uh, at this time. I mean, it would have to be a complete steal. Um, we're, and, you know, we're, we're coming from a place of, of profound experience. Too much. And, and be, well, no, just in the past, we knew how to risk calibrate and buy in this neighborhood. And we knew how to, we knew how to adjust for the conditions. And we actually liked the conditions. We liked the grit. We liked that it wasn't a fully gentrified and purified and banal neighborhood. But at the present time, um, the, the irresponsibility of, of the authorities of the day around the needs and wants of taxpaying citizens and businesses is just so out of whack that we wouldn't, we wouldn't buy down here right now. We never did buy in Chinatown. Um, we always thought that was one step too far. We were, we're huge in, in Gastown. We've given up three buildings on the Eastern front, if you will, between gentrification and, 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 and decay. And, um, you know, but we're still, we're still very committed to our core assets in Gastown. Yeah. Yeah. Which are all West of, of, uh, Carroll. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me more about the advocacy that, that, that you enjoy, like obviously Gastown's kind of frustrating and you've yeah. had so much experience here, but what well, through it? UDI, I mean, it, it's, it's been, and it's exhausting and, 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 you know, um, aggravating, but it's still something we do and we still need to do. And, and this is all around, you know, around, I think it was probably 2016 when previous liberal government actually brought in the foreign buyer tax. And, and since then, uh, the industry's been experiencing, like in addition to the ever kind of a creeping regulatory framework of building code and development permits and sustainability requirements and landscape requirements and, and so on, the, the, this incursion into the industry by absolute tsunami of, of new policy, um, whether it's the speculation vacancy tax, the special cool tax, the empty home tax, the, the underutilized home tax now from the federal government, um, and, uh, you know, Landowner Transparency Act. It's as though government just one day just turned on the real estate industry like a pack of wolves. And, and you know, we can talk forever about why and if that should have happened or should happen more or less. But it's become kind of a, a multi-front battle against three levels of government as well as, as many kind of citizen advocacy groups on, say, rental regulations and things like that, that, that have just put the industry under kind of this attack and... You know, in our role at UDI, my role at UDI, and just in terms of our own business too, we feel very compelled to to um, educate, to try to educate um, policymakers that that many of these are very, very ill-informed decisions. And I think we've seen now, after this kind of tear, well, federal government just did another one, but they're the most out of it. But this kind of tear of of what we call demand side measures to try and suppress demand that started in 2016 what we're left with is real people needing real homes um having nothing to choose from and the government suddenly waking up to the fact that you know the real issue is we have an imbalanced market and we don't have enough supply and people have always said to me why do you care like why why would you don't you as a developer benefit from scarcity of housing don't you aren't you able to charge more aren't you able to be even more unreasonable than line your pockets even more and the, the actually the opposite is true. What what developers would like is to is to build more housing, 
more frequently, more smoothly, in a more even manner at, at a lower margin and build more of it. Instead, what we, we, we climb a mountain for four, five or six or seven years to get a project approved and sell it into a profoundly undersupplied market and then do it all over again. And it's not a good way to run a business, not a good way to run, um, you know, what essentially is infrastructure. You know, housing is infrastructure and it's it's just the one infrastructure that that can't and won't be built by government. Uh, so government has an obligation to make sure that that infrastructure can be delivered in a, in a, in a, in a way that works for everybody involved in the process. But it's, um, that, that's the fight we're fighting. And it's, it, is it getting better? You know, is in, in our context here is, is David Eby, who I hadn't had the opportunity to be involved with on for a year and a half on monthly meetings to educate him about the housing industry. Is he going to be able to meaningfully change, um, you know, the way municipalities approve housing, is he going to be able to meaningfully get the province out of the way? Is the current ABC council in Vancouver going to be able to, you know, cut through their bureaucratic morass and find ways to get more done more quickly? These are all the biggest questions that we have right now. And and so because of that, our, our advocacy continues. Now we have a new cast of characters. We have to meet now with uh, Ravi Kalan, the new housing minister. We have to meet with Ken Sim. We have to meet with you know, new senior bureaucrats in Vancouver and Victoria and new, new council in Victoria and, and try to, you know, educate them um, about problems they've admitted are serious, but we're not sure they know how to address them. It's such a big industry and such a big and complicated problem. Developers often, you know, look like the bad guy. They look to the public like, you know, uh, greedy billionaires, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, there are set definitely some huge development companies, but, uh, there's all different types and it's a struggle for everyone. Yeah. I wonder, you, you said that the government sort of can't and won't, you know, be a supplier of, of the housing industry. Why do you, why do you feel they won't? Cause I've always wondered whether they see themselves as being able to do it better and will just continue to, you know, build more from social and continue up. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no question that there's a constituency of, of, of housing advocates, housing activists, if you will, who believe strongly that there should be no role for the private sector in housing, period. Um, it should simply be a, something that's provided by the government. That's weird. It seems so system. socialist. Well, it is socialist. I mean, these people are beyond socialist. But um, in fact, I've, I've had discussions with some some of these people uh, one guy who ran for council uh, last time what what once you convince them that the situation that they're trying to put you in as a business to develop housing is untenable and you they, you finally convince them that that their plans would make it untenable they say exactly that's why we think the government should go and buy every apartment building and turn it into rent protected apartments and they're they're living in a in a world where where the taxation system would need to be fundamentally different in order to provide all that housing for those people at, at, at such such deep deeply discounted rates and uh so but i mean the main reason i would say government won't become the main provider of housing is 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 whenever they've tried to do that in the past perhaps less so in asian cultures i think where they do a better job of, of meeting social housing needs kind of at the government level but in north america in western europe um, it's never been something they've been able to succeed at. And when they do overinvest in it and they do overstep, um, they, they invariably get into serious trouble and, and have their own 
typical real estate problems with their own portfolios, you know, CapEx and maintenance not kept up to date and, and envelope failures and mold and BC Housing had lots of that. So they, and, and, and all of that, and this is something the past mayor said, um, I think he had a stat that something like 93 or 97% of the land in BC, say, that that supports housing is owned by the private sector. So unless we have basically, unless we turn into a socialist supply-side economy like North Korea or former Soviet Union, I don't think that's going to happen. And so now, you know, I was just talking talking this morning at a, at a talk I was giving to the Mortgage Investment Association that we have an unprecedented in my career situation right now where if you take rental housing, an example, we have unlimited demand, like it's red hot, like everybody needs somewhere to rent. Nobody can buy because of the stress test and the high down payments and the high prices. So there's kind of infinite rental demand, but the, the, the manufacturers of that product, uh, developers uh, are currently wrinkling their noses up at those opportunities to build rental and saying you know, it doesn't work. And even if it did, when we get there, there's too many regulatory risks and political risks. So that that is a really strange situation. I mean, you imagine, I mean, you just don't see that in, you know, you don't see a situation where everybody wants to buy a computer and nobody will make a computer. But I'm afraid that's where we're, we're going to be with rental housing in particular for the next while. And my biggest concern about that is that the government, when faced with that kind of dilemma, feels compelled to do something and they invariably do something that's not right or it doesn't really solve the problem. You know, when you, this last CMHC report that came out is very alarming where it said that, um, you know, the people who already have rental homes are, are paying something in the order of 43% below market rates for rental. So there's a built-in discount to incumbent tenants that they're 43% below market. And anybody who's rent, new, renting a new place is is obviously renting at market or on a turnover. And and, and instead of seeing this as, um, you know, the, the, the pundits and the kind of government officials who, who read these reports, instead of saying, oh, my God, we've got a situation where um, the entire universe of rented homes is at 43% below market. How can those landlords continue to provide that subsidy, a private subsidy indefinitely? Or is that not a threat to all those people who are living in those discounted homes? They instead are said, why can't the people who are renting new also rent at 43% below market? <laughs> <Right>? So <laughs> it's it just shows you how twisted that lens is, yeah. right? And and yet, um, you know, and, and not allowing landlords to have even inflation on rental increases and bringing in mandatory um, air conditioning, all these types of things while not allowing those rents to grow is is ultimately going to do the most harm to that rental stock and put those renters in even more peril. I mean, we've already seen this with the SROs uh, in, in downtown where, um, you know, they're driven into a non-economic situation by regulation, then they're ultimately bought by government or expropriated, and then they burn down. Like that is the circling the drain of, of a type of rental housing. And if we don't change the way we think about the existing built form, a lot of a lot of it's very old, it's going to ultimately just disappear as housing. What is the new form that would be better? What are some of the things being contemplated? Do you mean to make rental work right now? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was working. Um, 
capital was cheap for a long time. That we all had, you know, in, in low interest is really the fuel of, of real estate. Interest rate is the is 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 the is the governor, and no interest is the fuel kind of thing. And and that so we had a big run of that. And and cities were doing a good job of incentivizing re- rental. Some cities with bonus density densification. Um, CMHC had some good programs and the stars were kind of aligned there for a while while rental was working and we were building at scale. Uh, but at the same time, housing was becoming less affordable. And so more and more people were being driven into the rental market, more people being driven into the rental market through immigration. Um, you know, we've got to see some reduction in, in costs and some increases in revenue. But unless CMHC steps in and, and, and you know, alters the capital stack again, we're not going to see a lot of rental. Now, that may be self-governing to some degree because I think Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver have become quite arrogant. You know, you hear people talk about immigration and, oh, yeah, there's 400,000, 500,000 people coming. We'll get 100,000. You know, Montreal will get 150. Toronto will get 200,000, 200, whatever, whatever adds up to 400. But, um, you know, and, and, and kind of taking that for granted is the fuel that drives, drives our ability to grow. But I, I think... It's so expensive and so unattainable that I think, and we've already seen some evidence of this, we're going to see a lot of this immigration going to Calgary, Edmonton, you know, Halifax, Victoria, um, and 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 not, there's just going to be less of those people coming here because reached the point where it just, it's just untenable. The cost. The cost, yeah. And the availability. Um, there's a lot of, lot of projects making their way through. City of Vancouver likes to brag that they've got 100 applications for uh, projects in the Broadway, recently approved Broadway corridor plan, which is uh, primarily a rental corridor. I know, everybody knows that probably one or two of 10 of those projects actually pencils right now. So, you know, taking that, thinking that they've got all this, you can't live in an announcement, right? Yeah. You can't live in a development permit application. You can only live in a built building. And so... How many of those are going to get built, and over what time frame? So we're at a real, in my in my view, kind of an unprecedented crisis moment in rental housing right now. Because mostly the interest rates, construction costs have gone up thirty percent in eighteen months. Interest rates have gone up, you know, three hundred percent. Approval times are ever lengthening, and and that so that's compounded. Yeah. You know, if you're carrying a piece of land or your or your construction's taking longer, so it's just a real. It is the same way the stars were aligned, you know, five years ago to build rental. They're they're kind of aligned now to not build rental. The opposite. Yeah, cost is way up. You just it's insane. Answer. I mean, you know, we you know wood four story wood frame building, uh, you know, kind of Vancouver typical arterial. Uh, two years ago was. 290 to 300 a foot today it's 560 570 a four-story wood frame building wow um high-rise concrete construction that was 370 380 in say 2016 is now 670 um luxury uh, downtown you know fancy with all the city's requirements and everything condo towers are are routinely exceeding 800 a foot now you're talking just hard costs yeah, just hard costs. Yeah. So it's 50% soft costs on top of that? Yeah, we've been using, have been using 35 through 2022, including CACs and interest. It's probably creeping up closer to, to 40% now. Oh. Yeah. So it's, it's a special uh, time. It's a special time. Yeah, it's a special time. It is such a consistent message. I mean, you're not the only uh, very engaged developer that's saying the same thing. Yeah. 
So, you know, I mean, we've seen these things before. Um, depends how old you are. You know, 81, 90, 92, 93, 2008. They're all different. They're all each, each sort of major economic period of economic difficulty is different and has a different sort of genesis and a different set of factors. Um, this one's quite different. It's, and it, it may in fact be the sort of uh, ultimate outcome of something that started in 2008 when we started with, you know, quantitative easing and printing, printing our way out of a downturn and, and, and carried that on all the way through and uh, somehow, and then did more of it, even more of it during COVID printing money. And um, now I think there's just sort of a, a realignment and, and, the, and that, that some of that, some of that, Printing our way out of trouble has to be paid for. I think another thing that's kind of driving a lot of that is that, that what I call the China dividend, that from the time China opened its economy to maybe just three, four years ago, you know, we are all experiencing the $200, $80 flat screen TV effect, right? Where, where everything was cheap and money was cheap and goods were cheap. And um, I think China kind of ran through that kind of, rapid industrialization to the point where they started to have a middle class and they started to get, um, you know, expectations of higher wages and they started with internal consumption. And so that discounted cost of, to society of doing everything is kind of diminishing now. And you see the Bank of Canada out there saying, we're going to get inflation back to 2%. We're never going to see 2% inflation again because the globalization effect of, uh, of, of China's rapid and, you know, period of providing cheap goods to the world has kind of come to an end. And so we have to onboard, you know, manufacturing again. And, you know, our economy is just intrinsically more expensive and subject to union negotiated labor increase and so on. So we won't see 2% inflation again. I think the Fed and the Bank of Canada will keep saying that for the next year and then they'll come up with a new target, settle in on a new target. Why is it ended in China? Well, they just, it's the same thing that happened in the U.S. in the, in, in the industrial revolution or in Europe, it's, there's a period of extreme high productivity, low wages, low regulation, low environmental protection, um, low expectations from employees. And it just naturally runs its course. It's and, one of the benefits of the free market system, right? That yeah. It's, and it should, I mean, people yeah. in China should be able to prosper from, yeah. from what they've been able to achieve. And, and, you know, we've had all these Asian tigers that we've gone through, China and Korea and, you know, Cambodia and, and Vietnam, and they've all had their, their run. China is the, the big, the biggest one. And, um, in, unless India becomes a, a country with, of, of, of high productivity, economic output, um, we're kind of done with that now kind of globally, right? Like every, there, there are no major societies left to go through that process in India. India ha has that opportunity, but I don't think, I just don't think culturally they'll ever quite go that way. They're just kind of wired a bit differently. Really? Yeah. I wonder why, in what way, I mean. I, I, th I think, I think ch the, the Chinese uh, economic educational aesthetic is just different. I think South Indian culture is more, it's more balanced in terms of family and lifestyle and religion and culture and I just don't see India becoming this massive uh, factory for the world kind of thing. Like China was remarkable that way. Yeah. I mean, you had this 
rural population who are extremely driven to succeed mainly in order to support family and they saw they see and how see business and and work as the the channels of that so they would all come in from these rural parts of china and work in these factories and sleep in these factories i've been all through china and seen all those factories we buy stuff there and the way they work is just mind-boggling like they're literally just working six days a week in a factory sleeping in a factory dorm cooking their food on the floor of the factory dorm that they buy at a market at lunchtime that pops up during lunchtime and going home once a year uh, you know on an overcrowded train i mean that that's kind of run its course now i think in china oh, and, and i think individual. that we we benefited maybe we benefited much more than we should have from that and everything was cheap for a long time yeah yeah oh it's rough, man. <laughs> Gas town to the broken real estate system to, uh, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say sweatshops, but just like a life in, in those Chinese factories. It's just yeah. does not sound fun. I, well, I think for them, it's just a journey to get to a better place. Yeah. And I think I've arrived at that place now. I mean, gosh, they're by no means affluent, but they have started to a develop. huge growing um, middle class. Yeah, middle class. Yeah. And that's, that's great. I mean, we benefited from, you know, and, and we same thing. I mean, you know, we all, our, our parents and grandparents all benefited at a different time from the industrial revolution, the, you know, the, the first industrial revolution and then the post-war industrial boom that started during the war, you know, when, when the U.S. was learning how to build planes and bombs and, you know, that tra that trans translated into building washers and dryers and cars and stuff. And there was a great boom. And then you know, and then eventually the union expectations started to come and land and drive up costs and, you know, the middle class thrived and things got more expensive. And so, yeah. So, I mean, that's all fine. I think it's just that we just in terms of monetary policy, I think, I think the Fed and, and Bank Canada is going to have to realize that we're not getting back to 2% inflation. I think that's an artificially low. I've even actually asked the Bank of Canada about that on these webinars that that they invite us to sometimes, or they ask us questions from industry specific. And I said, we're not getting back to 2%, like, but they'll keep saying that until they feel they've done the best they can to, to bring inflation back to wherever it's going to have to be, be now. Because that I, number. Three and a half, I think three, three and a half. But the 2% number justifies the actions that they want to take to uh, rectify it. Yeah. They're just signaling, right? Yeah. That, that, that they're going to be aggressive until that time. What's the downside of inflation? Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting question because from my experience, I mean, I I'm I experienced the big inflationary spike in 80, was it 81, 82, 83, when interest rates went to about 22%. Um, they moved too late. There was a big inflationary run-up and um, that was this lineups at gas stations and all that stuff, weird stuff from the late 70s and 80s. Um, you know, I mean, you hear stories from, you know, between World War One and World War Two, when people had to, you know, take a wheelbarrow full of Deutschmarks to buy a loaf of bread, you've seen hyperinflation in Venezuela, places like that, and and, and I think at, at some level it's profoundly destabilizing, can create actual breakdown in social order and riots and all that kind of thing. Because when it's really radical and things are inflating at different times, everything yeah. gets imbalanced. Well, I mean, bread's more when you get home from work than when you went to work. It's just like yeah. that's like that, um, and and I think that is. I think our, our monetary policy people are correct to make sure we never get into that situation. I don't know though that, 
you know, is 6% or 5% inflation. Yeah, what's wrong with really, 5%? Uh, yeah. I mean, when you look at people's expectations about growth, I mean, they, they a lot of people expect their wages to go up between 3 5% a year in a market, competitive market. Wages can go up 10 15% a year. People expect their homes to go up, you know, 20% a year. So there's something a bit misaligned there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not, not an economist. I don't really know. But anyway, it looks like they're going to be pausing for a while here now to see what happens. And I think, think what, what, what it all markets hate and the real estate market's no different is, is volatility or uncertainty. I think we're going to see 2023 being kind of a little bit of a cautious year, but where some return of demand and some people sitting on the sidelines who really need to make a move, really need to sell, really need to buy. I think we'll see them coming back into the market. Um, we're now projecting, if we want to start getting a little more positive, you know, we're now starting to project, if we're looking at a two or three year model, we're starting to project rate declines of uh, up to a point and a half, even two points by the end of 2024. Cool. That might just be hopeful thinking, I don't know, but it feels like, and, and anecdotally uh, for construction, um, we're definitely starting to hear more now. Uh, it's, I've yet to see it really manifest in an actual bid that surprised me in terms of being less, but there, anecdotally, there's a lot more um, appetite in the construction industry to, you know, participate in a meaningful way. Like, you know, in the middle of 2022 or Q1 of 2022, we were getting bids from trades on giant jobs where they said our price is good for a week. Now we were working on one job where our bids came in in October and we're into a value engineering process with that contractor and their subs. And they're all hanging around helping us do VE and not one of them said I'm leaving or my price is going up. So I think that's starting to happen. Totally. That's, that's a, the kind of early, that's early a leading indicator. Thing. Yeah. Uh, participation, not walking away from prices, bid coverage are all starting to look a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. And the demand is back. We sold 126 homes on the weekend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. The, the buyers are people that want to buy, uh, but are afraid based on all of the bad news out yeah, there. They just want some, something to settle. Yeah. So they, yeah. so when, when we, when the project is hot, in this case, Lucent, um, you know, they feel safe in a room full of people. They like seeing other people buying. They don't feel alone. They yeah. feel, feel confident in the decision that they want to make. Yeah. Uh, and they go for it. And yeah. they also know that, you know, the, the market has a very bad habit in all markets, not just real estate, but everybody tries to be really smart and pick the bottom. Yeah. Uh, and it's very difficult um, yeah. in any industry, I think, and certainly in real estate. Yeah. I mean, I, I think condos going forward in 2023 and 2024, if they're property calibrated in the market, right size, right overall price, right size, right product are, are actually going to do okay. And a lot of that's going to be driven by rental demand. That's not going to be met by purpose-built rental. So a lot Absolutely. of those, a lot of those people are going to be investors as well. Yeah. It's such an easy entry point for people too. Yeah. Buying a presale is just so easy. Yeah. It's just and the easiest the, thing in the world. You got a decent chance it'll go up and not that much like it'll go down. It doesn't happen that often during the time while you're waiting for it to be built. Usually, usually the worst you're going to do is sort of about the same. Yeah. In my experience and you're rarely trading and closing in a substantially lower price. I mean, well, projects that sold in, in 2020 or... <laughs> 2019 at $2,700 a foot, maybe, but there's not that many of those. Right? Not many. Yeah. And and most people expect that over the long run, real estate's going to go up maybe 5% per year. Yeah. On average. Yeah. 
And when you crunch those numbers, like on a $600,000 condo, 15% deposit, that's 90,000, 5% per year per four years of construction is $130,000 uptick in value on the $90,000 investment. That's not even an investment because it's, it's a deposit. Yeah, well, it yeah. feels like an investment when they yeah. write the check. But again, not all at once, uh, yeah. 30,000 every six months. Yeah. That's actually higher. No, I mean, you know, as a, as, a, as a developer of large pre-sold projects, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure the smartest people in the room are the pre-sale buyers. I know, it's <laughs> crazy. They, the amount of return they can get on, on a modest investment. And, and what bugs me is how government sees that as a bad thing. But what those people are actually doing, you know, the speculators, right? What they're actually doing is giving a project the necessary fuel to start construction so that those units will get built, so that someone will buy them and either live in them or rent them. Yeah. Why is that bad? It's just the way capitals it needs to come together to get these projects off the ground. And meanwhile, the government limits and says, if you haven't pre-sold the whole project in a year, you yeah. can't build it at all. So there's all this other distortion that happens around trying to get those pre-sales. I've never understood that. And for those that don't know that, that there's, it was nine months, now it's 12, but there's a restriction on a developer from marketing a project for longer. And, uh, I thought it was really nice of the government to not allow the public to be annoyed with the same ads for the same project for too long. But beyond that, what is, what's the point? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a consumer protection concept that, you know, you don't, you don't, they're trying to protect that someone, you know, they're probably thinking of a home buyer, you know, buys a home and, and the developer doesn't have some obligation to either get going and get it built or give them their money back within a reasonable period of time because they've tied up that money and, I they wonder that, buy but, another the, home. but there is a deadline in disclosure, you know, unrelated to that, 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 that rule, that 12 month cutoff around the completion or the delivery date. Um, so I think that buyer would be protected by that. Yeah. I but, really the, get it. but, but if it does, if it doesn't get started, then they're not going to be in their home in a reasonable period of time. Right. Yeah. So that date would expire, right? Cause that date's based on the contract date. So if the, the developer took two years to get enough homes sold, now they've lost, call it an extra year from that, you know? Yeah. Anyways. Those are normally much longer dates, but yeah, it's a strange one though. Right. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird one. Yeah. And then they complain, well, I mean, my favorite one about is that another level of incursion by government is like, so you have a unit with a project with 400 units in it. You, you have to get a lot of sales in that one year period. You have to get all, either all or 60, 70%. Then they would complain that we would work with like whale realtors, like, uh, uh, and you know, why are you giving this realtor preference? And you'd say, well, because this realtor has a track record of bringing in a lot of sales who don't rescind. And we need that in order to get enough sold to meet your one year requirement. But these kind of like, this is the problem with government is they don't, all the regulations are kind of made in these silos and they don't understand the business that they're regulating. And so they don't even think about these things. And, and when you're this kind of comes full circle to advocacy, when you're trying to advocate or educate as to why this is not a good idea, it's, it's a fine exercise, a challenging exercise to, to, to try to not just be a complainer. Uh, just developers complain and complain about everything versus educating and trying to have them actually listen and understand what the implications are. Um, I was particularly impressed with David Eby in this regard. I mean, we did we did spend a whole bunch of time with him when he was a housing minister. And in my view, he is without a doubt the most educated premier in the history of the province on wow. housing and housing and, and real nuts and bolts stuff in housing and really understands some of the issues that industry faces. And, you know, can he translate that 
while he's premier into some some meaningful things and this is no longer about making developers happy it's about meeting the needs of the public and i think he's realizing that if he could do one thing like one idea maybe it's been put forward by udi one suggestion make one significant change what what would you like it to be if you could wave your magic wand i think he sh i think the province should step in and simply up zone everything around transit you know f you know a thousand meters 800 meters with no involvement with the city at all just say just the way you know there's a great story in our not too distant past when gordon campbell former premier of the province was the mayor um in the downtown south area um you know where we've all worked right where all the towers are now you know richards hornby seymour all that um they up zoned that from one fsr industrial to five fsr residential in one foul swoop they up zone an entire area and that led to a 20 25 year long run of uh 30 25 30 35 story high rises buildings like space and all those kind of that, that actually were pretty affordable because there was just so much choice and so much land available and that's what they need to do now uh around transit and you know, i remember we were telling the minister uh when the broadway plan kept getting delayed you know put stop payments on your checks for the transit. Literally, do not pay the city any more money for the rapid transit project until they've upzoned the area. And um, now they have, they've upzoned uh, the Broadway corridor. Well, they've given a zoning, a rezoning policy where you still have to fight each project by project for the upzoning with EB looking over, the, over their shoulder. I mean, Kennedy Stewart told me he felt like David EB was sitting on his desk uh, during the Broadway corridor plan. But now the city's proudly announcing that it's going to take a year to a year and a half or more to process Broadway corridor rezonings and that they've got a huge backlog and they don't have the staff. And so this is why I think the, the, the province should just simply upzone it. They shouldn't, it shouldn't be a rezoning policy at all. It should simply be pre-zoned. Do you think the cities uh, like the individual negotiations with developers so they can cash in on that? Yeah, of course. The The reason they don't pre-zone land or they underzoned all land is because it gives an opportunity to negotiate on a case-by-case -case basis for CACs or on-site amenities. And so, yeah. I mean, it's okay. We don't mind paying a fair cost for, for growth and we like having amenities on our project, but they just need to get out of the way. I mean, really, if you have a site next to a next to a SkyTrain line on Broadway, you should just be able to just walk in and get a building permit or a development permit, right? I agree. Yeah. Does the provincial government have authority to do that? They do. How does that work? Well, I mean, basically the municipal government is just a delegated authority to the provincial government in the same way that the provincial government is a delegated authority of the federal government. It's, it's a hierarchy and uh, they can change anything they want. There, there's something called the municipal act, which, and in, 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 um, Vancouver, it's called the Vancouver Agreement, and it's a legislative document that tell. it's like a job description. It tells the city, this is what you can govern and this is what you can't. And if you want to change anything in that document and govern more than in that document, you have to come and get permission from us. And so they can, they can do that. In fact, they did something interesting just before the municipal election. Um, province gave TransLink the authority who up until then they only had the right they only had the legislative authority to buy land around transit to develop stations and now they've been given authority to um to buy land to do development not near stations well 
no near stations, oh, near stations but now they're, develop, they're allowed now they're own. allowed to do development not just build stations that's cool and the implication of that legislation is is obvious it's they don't need permission from the city once they if they own land and are allowed to do development by by the provincial government of translinks allowed to do development they wouldn't need to get permission from the city on height density shadow view cones any of that stuff interesting the other one that could be really helpful um and it's scary for private developers like ourselves but but for society it's hopeful is obviously the first nations projects like senac um at the end of the day they're just way less regulated uh, they don't have to get permits from the city there's no way that senac would have ever gotten a permit from the city for what they're doing there if they needed a permit from the city and they're planning to build rental because they don't want to sell their land so this might be a game-changing uh development or developments if if they build those projects and they're primarily rental that may really open up availability of, of rental. And you're talking about the one over by the brewery. Yeah. And the, the broad bridge there. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also the Jericho lands. Yeah. Their first nations developments are, are happening all over the place. And yeah. developers are really one developer in North van who couldn't get something through the district of North van. So they sold their land to a partnership with the adjacent first nation, turned it into reservation land. And, uh, just did exactly what they wanted. No way. Yeah. yeah. Well, partnership is the solution. There's so many partnerships now, you know, yeah. you've got, um, Aquilini's been way out front on that. Um, and others, uh, Darwin on the North shore and others who are, are, are really getting active with, uh, with first nations partnership. You think TransLink would execute on their own or would they partner probably with, uh, somebody? I think they'd probably, I, I think they'd leave the partnerships to private developers and how they can benefit from partnering with First Nations. I think they they would do it on their own. Although no, I'm Jericho- I mean, on the TransLink sites that they have now have permission to develop. Oh, partner with developers. Yeah. Yes, I think they would. So I think I. they probably don't know how to do it. And I, I think a lot of developers are are looking at that opportunity thinking, okay, we can cut through some of the the regulation barriers and work with TransLink and, um, and partner. Yeah, I think that was probably some of the intent of the legislation. Yeah, so the province has got it. It really is in the province's court right now. That they've they we worked with uh, the minister of housing, David Eby, before he was premier, and 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 they've come up with this housing targets legislation, which is sort of measuring issued building permits, and it's it's a blunt instrument, and it keeps them out of the detail aspects of development, but ultimately. If municipalities have to deliver a certain number of building permits per year based on their growth targets, um, it should start to melt away some of the barriers. I mean, the, the problem with planning is that there's just no, you have, you have people who are housed electing people who are in charge of creating new housing. And so it just doesn't work because there's a conflict of interest. So and again, people, there's been no bookend. There's been there's been no you know they can make as many crazy rules as they want to make housing difficult, and there's been nobody to answer to. You know, it's just the answer to the electorate, who doesn't want housing anyway. They they don't want you know they they're, they're young people who are working three jobs and trying to find somewhere to rent aren't at a public hearing. Yeah, the people who are at a public hearing already have their house. It's probably paid off. They got nothing else to do. They sit around banging their canes on the back of the chair at public hearings. That's a good visual. Uh, you know, Bo Jarvis. We were talking about Bo Jarvis, and I mean, I'll never forget. I mean, this is a. It, it's 
bordering on an inappropriate comment, but 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 it's it's nevertheless has an element of truth to it. A lot of the people who are opposing developments will be dead by the time the developments are built, you know, especially <laughs> especially at the rate they want them to get built. So you know, it 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 is a kind of a broken system, and and COVID's been interesting in that the uh, public hearings going to virtual actually really leveled the playing field quite a bit, and yeah. you could be at home like trying to give your kid a bath and waiting on your phone to see if you could speak at a public hearing. I mean, that, that was a much more democratic. It should stay that way. Yeah. And it primarily has. And uh, some of the community groups where there were some community groups in Victoria who were viciously lobbying to have it go back to the old way because they knew that they were getting a, a broader voice from the community and it wasn't going the way they wanted. So yeah. Quite interesting. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Some of the, one of the silver linings of COVID, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, the engagement is definitely better. I mean, you can get more people complaining, but you know, you do like I've listened to some of those really big public hearings that the last council had, um, and uh, it's just getting a much more balanced view, right? You, you, a lot of it was kind of a fifty-fifty thing, you know, whereas opposed to if it's just sitting in the council chamber, yeah, it's just uh, a different biased crowd, right? So, what do you love about all this advocacy stuff? It sounds. Ex exhausting like it's this huge complex problem and so many people with their own individual agendas what draws you to it i mean, I, I i don't know i mean they, you know they used to be i mean i'm a developer and i'm profit driven and i want to be successful and all that stuff but but at another level i'm interested in the success of society and and people striving and working hard and benefiting from their efforts and um i just see a lot of inequity right now in, in, in our industry. I see a lot of vested interests um, working against people's needs, right? Um, I primarily dislike the idea that people don't feel a responsibility to accommodate growth in their communities. And uh, that's not fair. You know, we have this kind of fee simple land system in our society where you know, it's not, it's not like the U S like where you really have kind of inalienable, inalienable land rights. Like we have this kind of system where government said we own all the land, but you can pretend you own it for the time being and you can sell it to each other and you can kind of do what you want. But if we decide you're misbehaving, we can take it all back from you, you know, through expropriation. And, and, and I think because of that, society has a certain obligation to use land in a way that's kind of fair to to the greater society right and what i see now is is a system and you'd think that this is something that would developers would be accused of but i actually think vested interests in particularly in residential in existing communities as represented by government are hoarding land um using it selfishly and allowing the greater population of society not to use that land and have the benefit of it which is to live in and live on and so on and so you know i just don't like that i just think that it's I mean, we, none of us want to see our kids not being able to have a hope in hell of buying anything unless their parents have been successful enough that they're and stupid enough to give them a bunch of money. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's just not a very healthy situation. And, I, you know, at some level, I just feel altruistically in, interested in trying to fix that. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I thank you, man. It's a, it's a huge battle and, uh, and you don't seem tired of it, but it's, um, someone's got to do it. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess, yeah, it's, I mean, we, we're all, Vancouver's been an amazing city for real estate. It makes everybody look smart. And we've all, a lot of people in the industry have been very successful and done really well. And, um, my feeling is just, 
I want all that and I want to keep doing that, but I just, I just want to also try to make sure that, um, you know, it's a responsible industry and it can deliver on people's needs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anyone on the other side that you would like to have a debate with? You know, is there any, uh, rental advocacy groups or uh, special interests that you'd love to get in a room with? Uh, well, I mean, Twitter's the room. Um, <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, I, I, I'll talk to anybody, I, you know, the the tenant Vancouver, Vancouver tenants union is a, is, is a group that's, you know, very vocal and, uh, has their heart in the right place, but very misguided about things. And, you know, I mean, I think get people getting mutual understandings of, of, of each other's issues about how to deliver. But I mean, at some point you're just at, at the, the, the kind of extreme housing advocates at the end of the day, you, you can't really talk to them about these issues because they are the people who just think don't, we don't want private industry in housing period. They don't even want you in the room. Go away. Yeah, go yeah. away. Let government take care of it and so on. Right. We know that's probably necessary for, for, um, mental health and welfare based housing. It just doesn't yeah. work economically, but it's not a reality that's practical for rental housing or, or home ownership. Some developers have said on the show that, um, that it's pretty painful, you know, and if it gets any more painful, they're, they're liable to deploy their capital elsewhere or in sure. other ways. Well, the number of developers who no longer work in Vancouver is remarkable. I mean, they, um, or if they do, they just do a little in, and, you know, Vancouver is a tough, tough environment for development for sure. Um, money moves all the time. I mean, you look at other developers like, um, Ani or, you know, maybe Amicon, uh, um, Pinnacle. I mean, these guys are, are everywhere. They're all through, Ani in particular, they're all through, they're in Chicago, they're in LA, they're, you know, Bose is in Nashville, you know, that has, you know, very little regulation. Um, so a lot of developers have already moved their money. Yeah. 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 So if they keep doing that, if more developers do that, then there's less supply here and, uh, well, less capital, yeah, less capital coming together to, I mean, I think I, I wouldn't, I mean, one of the reasons I think Vancouver is such a tough place to do development is that, is that, you know, the municipality just keeps tightening the screws and we just keep coming back and we keep coming in with another project and another project, and another project, and they get to thinking that anything they do is still going to work and anything we say is just bullshit. So, you know, there's a bit of truth to that because such a great market from a demand point of view to develop into and that kind of sport and that, that adversarial component of it was all fine and part of the game and until it, in, until it no longer became, a, I said this a few minutes ago, it's no longer about, you know, who's winning developers or regulators. It's, it's now about real hardship in society of people not having what they need in terms of housing. And that's when it's not a game anymore. That's when the sportsmanship and the negotiating and the haggling and the strategizing and all that stuff has to sort of get swept aside to just get outcomes, right? And that's where we're at right now. If you were just starting out now as a developer, what would be like, where's the opportunity? Where's, what would be the entry point? Do you mean geographically? Yeah, hey, you know, you're a regular person. Um, most of the people that you know of that have generated sort of wealth and safety and comfort for their family have done it through real estate. Um, you know, they're listening right now to a developer who has a ton of experience in, in multiple yeah. markets. Well, I think the first thing you have to ask yourself as a developer is like, 
there, there's two, there's essentially two components to it, right? There's like the money, which is what you said, you know, your, your debt and your equity, and there's the skill. The first thing you have to figure out as a person in real estate is where's the money, right? Because you can be the most brilliant real estate person on the planet. And if you haven't hooked yourself up to equity or debt, you're not going anywhere because it's such a capital intensive business. So if you want to start, if you want to start with skill and, and you don't have, you haven't hooked yourself to a money train and you want to kind of learn the ropes, I, I, I think as a developer is not as, not as just an employee, but sort of as an entrepreneur, I think the best place to go right now, if you're young enough, um, is into this kind of missing middle world that, you know, you, you see in Victoria bring in missing middle, you're seeing it coming to Vancouver where, you know, it's the sixplex or it's the, the conversions or the triplex or the duplex and, you know, learn some of that learn how to get permits and how to do drawings and you know what what, what it all means because there'll be lots of ways to capitalize that like you build to capitalize that with existing owners for instance who already want to own the land already own the land but have no skill right if you if you're interested in the industry and you don't want to you know you don't want to do it at that scale but you want to do it large scale you just got to get involved with a private developer and try and work your way up mm-hmm. if you if you have an opportunity to to hook yourself to to a source of capital, which is kind of the way at what I did really. Uh, it was a big balance sheet company that didn't didn't do development, didn't know what to do, and didn't understand development. Then, if you can if you can connect to that source of capital, so that would be finding somebody who's got capital or real estate but no development expertise and wants to go that way. Then you can mix expertise with capital. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's, it's so many times in my career, you know, I think oh, I should just you know like you get over focused on your own ideas or your own opinion of your own ability to execute but if you ever lose track of the fact that you need the money to do it you're you're going nowhere right yeah. so you always got to you always got to like the, the expertise is actually a lot easier to develop than the source of capital you got to yeah. have that source of capital and that capital has to be if you're going to succeed it's not just the amount of capital is, is that, is the decision maker behind that capital able to deal with the ups and downs of, of real estate and the long timelines and the setbacks and all that. Yeah. So that, that capital also has to kind of have a philosophy that goes with it. Yeah. Cause you know, I remember we, we partnered with Jim Pattison, um, on Briar Place. We were actually the, the, the larger partner, but coming into that, um, they, they just didn't like real estate cause it was just the cycle time was too long. And, um, you know, it's like groceries and, you know, groceries, the best example. I mean, the return, the cycle time on the return on investment is like every day. Yeah. Right. And, you know, here we did a project with them where we spent money for like 13 years and got all back in one day. <laughs> and that, that wasn't something that they were right. philosophically aligned with, but just circumstantially, we sort of dragged them through one of those and they came out the other end of it. And now they want to do more real estate. Yeah. So you, ha- you, you have to have the money, but you also have to have the mindset that allows you to deal with the very strange, um, you know, cycle time of real estate. It's a really long game investment. And it's getting like longer, longer all the time, even a basic condominium development. I mean, it's literally, you start spending money, you, you know, you, type a piece of land, you do some investigations, you buy the land, you start designing, you, you know, you, you get your PC going, you sell, you hire a cam, you sell, then you, then you find your contractor, then you build and like, it just, it's years, right? Even for a small one. And so it's, it's a, if you're lining yourself with capital, it has to be the kind of capital that understands that. Yeah. Not 
somebody who's say in the retail business and like it's just like you know you turn your inventory every 30 days and prove your prove your margin every 30 days or grocery every day yeah yeah that's so long it's becoming multi-generational yeah. some of the biggest companies are right? oh yeah totally yeah yeah and i think that's why in vancouver in particular the family companies have done so well in development you know our company you know Cressy, Ani, Amicon, Pinnacle, it goes on and on, you know, uh, West Group, they, they, they have that, they have that patience. Um, and they, they, they know that if they don't get their money, if they don't get the money from this development, their son will, or their, their family trust or whatever, they, they, they're not always looking to, to sort of prove that they exited. Right. Yeah. 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 Are you thinking like that? Are you thinking about the next generation, bringing them into the business? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, de we definitely, you know, we've grown so fast in the last five or six years that we've, we've only gone, like, I think our development team's only eight people. Um, they're definitely all younger than, than the principals and myself and, um, are any of them future leaders. It's sort of to be determined, you know, family companies are sort of strange too. How? They're, they're not, well, they're, they're idiosyncratic. The decision-making processes aren't always logical. There's, there's more gut. There's a, always a nepotism element. And so, you know, grooming future leaders in a family company is difficult because you, you just, you just never know when the family's going to pivot. Right. But I, I much prefer it to large corporate structure because there's so much more nimble. Yeah. Less bureaucratic, less bureaucratic, less complicated, you know, doorway meetings. I've made $200 million decision standing in a doorway. Right? Yeah, no one, awesome. no one, no investment committee, you know? So yeah, it, it's a great, and, and it's proven, it's proven to be very successful in our market. These, these nimble family companies. And then the way they grow and the way we've grown is, is, is taking on significant equity partners where we stay, we still stay very invested. Like our smallest equity position in any of our projects, I think is about 20% more usual, about 40, but just because the projects are so big, so that's how we're scaling. We've worked with Patterson, Quadriel, Kingset, Crestpoint, Heinz out of the U.S., um, Seacliff out of Vancouver. So while they're here at Vancouver, so we're we now have a lot more partnerships, and that's really just because the deals are so big and the equity requirements are so big that you're just pooling capital for scale, right? Yeah, deals are getting so big. Yeah, it's becoming a barrier to entry for regular people. Yeah. And it's also, it's also an adjustment to existing companies. Like we, you know, we'll find ourselves looking at some 20,000 square foot heritage building that we want to renovate because we've done so many of those and they're so fun and they're so satisfying and they win awards and all that. But we, we sort of have to learn ourselves to sort of wean ourselves from the smaller deals because they, you've heard this many times. I mean, they require just the same amount of work as, as a big deal. And, you know, you'd get too heavy on them and you know, you just, it's not efficient for your yeah. management team. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So what else do you want to talk about? I mean, you, you know, it, it, it um, one of the things that we've, we've, and it, it relates to your business, the business you're in is, is, is rental now is a full on in our experience is a full on project marketing an initiative like you're building presentation centers or in the building, you know, at the end, you've got full market collaterals, you've got full communication design, all the social media, push all that stuff. Are you, 
are you finding that as a, as a project marketer, a channel that, that, that offers any opportunity? Because we see some do it and some don't, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, we've got no interest in that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not because maybe we don't have the skill set or, or whatever, but um, we just kind of stay in our lane and yeah. do one thing as well as we possibly can. I think it's a better path to success. Yeah. Um, being, you know, doing a deep, deep dive and being the best in the world at one thing versus trying to be all things to all people. Yeah. It's just interesting because it's sort of the same process, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's getting someone to make a, an economic decision about moving into a home, whether it's, yeah. a, whether it's a purchase or, or rental. And it's, yeah. it's, I just find that, that, that across all the market sectors, you know, con economy and project marketing, which I think in some ways was almost kind of invented here. It's like, it's such a great industry. It's so much better done than in many centers, but that level of marketing is actually starting to work its way into rental and into office as well. Like commercial realtors don't just do an eight and a half by 11, maybe two sided if it's fancy thing anymore. Yeah. They, they do, it's the full thing now, you know, it's big websites and digital visualization and heavy duty renderings and all that kind of stuff. So I just find that I think it's interesting that the marketing the marketing budgets and the marketing deliveries that you need now are, are getting deeper and more sophisticated all the time. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And I, if I, I don't think I was totally honest before the reality is, or my opinion about the rental business, it doesn't pay well, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's it worth can, half a month's rent or yeah, something skinny. like that. Yeah. And, right. um, we put, so many people on our projects to make them successful. It yeah. just, it's a break even exercise at best. And, uh, so it's just not that, not that interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think most of our competitors that do it, do it to keep their client happy or to keep them under their sort of yeah, control yeah, kind of in the wing. Yeah. yeah. The other one I find myself and we, and on every single project, we ask ourselves, is this going to be the project where we don't build a presentation center <laughs> yeah. where we don't spend $4 million <laughs> And throw it all in the garbage at the end, including all the pillows and, you know, accessories and stuff like that. And I, I've always envisioned, I you know you were talking to Michael Geller about, you know, ideas. I, I've always had this sort of fantasy of the presentation center being one of those kind of like flight simulator things that you go into. You go in, you sit down, you put on your seatbelt, flies you all, you know, flies you around outside development up and all through the unit and everything. And like, you, it's shaking and it's moving and it's tilting and you're having lots of fun. And then it goes upside down, shakes all the money out of your pockets. <laughs> and then, and then you walk out and you own a condo. Like, like I really, it'd be amazing to start to, to actually sell condominium projects in that, in that way, like move into the future of, of not building these presentation centers. And every single time we get to the same juncture and we go, not this time. Like you just, it's like you were talking about that, the, how hard it is to change your project marketing company. If the last one is successful, you know, why change? It's not broken. You know, you did okay. Same thing with presentation centers. It's like, oh, we built a presentation center and it worked and everybody came and they opened the drawers and looked at the dishwasher and, <laughs> you know, can we do it? I mean, I, I, I just think they're so wasteful, right? Yeah, they are. And yeah. we, during the heat of COVID, uh, we, we sold out a project without anybody in the sales center. Because of COVID, it was all virtual people in their living rooms. Sometimes their realtors were present with them in their homes if they were comfortable with that, but nobody was in the sales. And were you carrying the phone around, showing them what everything looked like? Almost. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. bizarre. It was all simultaneous and online through software and, and the latest tools. But there was no, um, it worked because it was, uh, you know, a, a, a well-priced wood frame project. Mm -hmm. But 
anytime that the buyers are being asked to pay any type of a premium for high quality, uh, high design, things like that, there, it does make sense for them to be able to touch and feel it and experience. So why is that? Like, so Tesla, yeah. I mean, I guess you can go into a Tesla showroom and look at a Tesla and then, and then go home and order it. Well, Tesla is a perfect example because when they first started, um, you know, they were looking ahead of the curve in so many ways and they were no display suites or sorry, no showrooms at all at first. And they, they quickly pivoted on that and realized that, you know, as silly as it is, people need to walk into a space and see at least one car sitting there and talk to one person who's going to walk them over to a computer exactly like the one I have at home and literally walk them through the process they could have done at home. Yeah. And as unnecessary as, as that whole thing is, they're doing it because they find it is in fact necessary. Yeah. So then the other thing that the other developers have tried is they create the, I'll, I'll open a presentation center downtown and I'll reskin it for every project. And yeah. I don't have to keep doing the CapEx over and over again and everybody knows where I am. Also doesn't work. So uh, it's it's really interesting, like what, what, you know, what is this sort of idiosyncratic thing that you, you the only way to sell a condo is to build a special presentation center for that condo as close as possible to that condo preferably right on the site where for sure you'll have to demolish it when you're done. <laughs> I know it sounds so silly when you say it. Yeah. Um, it, it'd be nice to, you know, all the political stuff aside and all that, just in terms of innovating in our industry, uh, it'd be nice to figure a better way through that process. It's ultimately costing the homeowners more money. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. You know, we don't do $4 million sales centers. You know, the bit that we only did, we're part of one once when we worked for West group for a huge project called river district. That was a $4 million yeah. spend, but that was a massive project for decades. It would pay dividends yeah. and made sense, but usually we're much, much later. So the yeah. cost is, is, or sorry, the waste is less, but, but yeah. the, the challenge that we have, like when it, when the project finally gets to us to, to find buyers for it, um, is that, the developer demands premium prices, you know, and that's if they didn't, um, you know what, I'll tell you what never happens on projects is developers, uh, never want to sell it as cheaply as possible. Uh, they never reduce the, the spec and the finishing as much as possible to get the price as low as possible. Uh, I mean, this sort of whole direction of things, it just never happens because it doesn't doesn't make sense. You know, the difference in cost between, you know, a high end top of the line kitchen that the market would be really excited about versus a, a, a low, a mid range or a low end kitchen, which nobody's going to be excited about, but works perfectly well isn't very much, you know, it's, it's a few thousand bucks, but mm -hmm. it's not, uh, it's not going to move the needle. And yeah, it's about getting people engaged and interested. Yeah, yeah. That's what sales is. It's about, it's about energy. It's about getting people excited. It's about showing them uh, a home that they want to live in. Like yeah. when you really nail a, a sales center, a presentation center, a display home, um, the buyers have a feeling like they just want to move in. I mean, literally to that place, they want to bring their luggage in. It's the feeling I had is when I fell in love with the industry. I walked in the first sales center I'd ever been in. I couldn't believe it. It was so cool. It was so much better than my shitty apartment. I just wanted, you just to, wanted to be there. Yeah. I just wanted to live there. I wanted that to be my TV. Yeah. That's going to be my bedroom. This is amazing. And that feeling I've never forgotten. And that's, that's what. So there's an emotional do. component to it that you just have to engage. And yeah. That's, and that's the cost of engaging that. There's that love feeling. It's yeah. aspiration. It's uplifting. Yeah. And then the other feeling that comes from sales centers is FOMO and energy and some right. sort of competition Urgency. for supply and, and yeah. the safety I talked about earlier where buyers see other people making the same decision right. they want to make and that makes them feel safe. 
So that's not going to change. Well, it's very, it's, it's difficult. You know, you can, you can let people see online that the appointments that they want are being booked really quickly. Uh, you can see that they can see that the availability is disappearing. Um, we can even create environments. I wasted a lot of time and money creating a, an online sort of condo shopping environment where they could see uh, avatars of other people. Uh, all this type of stuff is is in progress, but it's just still early days, and it's and it's going to yeah. happen. Uh, Technology is going to get better and better. We got the the meta failure, which is a little bit disappointing. We were all excited that it was going to be uh, the metaverse was going to be this place where we're all going to be sitting here in goggles, but engaged with each other. And I, I wondered, thought a lot about you know how that could manifest into sales centers. Um, it might happen. Uh, it, it will happen. It's just a case of when. And even though I'm like a tech forward type thinker, uh, I'm being patient with what actually yeah. works. So what we're finding with rental is. You, know, say, you can't always say you can't build an old building. You can only build a new building. And so the all the new rental that we're building is is by definition, it's luxury. It's you're mining the top 20% of the market, if not even maybe even 10%. And what we're seeing in that space is m most of the people who are renting in those buildings are inbound to the city. They're coming to work for Amazon or Apple or whatever. And they're renting and it's different. It's not an investment decision. It's a lifestyle decision, but they're they're renting totally from a digital platform, and uh, sometimes a, an iPhone kind of walk around tour um, because they're not even here. So, from a lifestyle point of view and a quality real estate point of view, it seems to be achievable. But maybe when it's a you know million or million and a half dollar condominium, it's it, you just gotta you gotta go that much further to get it. Yeah, yeah, and depending on. The temperature of the market, you know, yep. it's a red, you said earlier, it's a red hot rental market. Right. So, so. people are, fear, are afraid there's FOMO already. Yeah. So okay. they're, they're, they're getting on the internet and they're, they're getting onto these visualization tools and yeah. drone videos and they're getting a good idea of what the real estate's like and, and totally. making those decisions. So, yeah, I mean, it is a, you know, I'm the last guy to advocate for bleeding edge tech and it, it, you can really make a mess trying to get into that stuff too quickly, but the real estate industry is one of the most antiquated industries going in terms of, of the way we distribute our product and also the analytics that go with our sales. I mean, until some of these products came along like Spark or Avesto or whatever, I mean, you know, guys selling paper cups knew more about what they were selling than people selling multi-million dollar condominiums. It's been a very slow industry and the project marketing firms, um, I guess this is turning into me interviewing you now, but the uh, the project marketing firms have been, to varying degrees, very slow to adopt technology. You know, like even that basic stuff, like like inventory tracking and yield analysis and all that kind of stuff. It's it's been interesting. I don't disagree. I... It goes back to where we started, which is it's it's this kind of cult of personality um, with project marketing firms and and the analytics and stuff was always sort of. You know, I used to do all the sales models for, for our projects. I, I had to assemble it all myself. Really? Yeah. And now that's changing, right? But, yeah. I wonder why. I wonder if it's because, um, you know, got a good thing going. We don't want to fix it if it's not broken. Don't want to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Just let, every, let everything stay how it is. It's yeah. awesome. <laughs> we like well, it. real estate and construction is even worse. I mean, construction is, is like, I think they did this. I was involved with this thing with... I think it was IBI and one of the accounting firms and they did this 
big ranking of all the different industries in the world and how they've adopted technology. And it was like when hunter gatherers and then real estate, you know, in terms of embracing technology and it kind of went up from there, yeah. but I mean, it is, and the construction industry has been even slower. I mean, the technology and in, in, in uh, deployment and construction is only now when you go on a site, do you see guys with iPads, you know, maybe with their drawings that of whatever they're actually standing there building as opposed to a crumpled up drawing hanging out of their back pocket kind of thing covered with rainwater and mud and stuff. So it's a very, it's a very antiquated industry, real estate. Yeah. Yeah. I hate hearing that. <laughs> but it's getting better, right? But it's just, it's just, it, these are more questions. It's like, why have we been so slow to adopt um, technology as part of our, of our day-to-day conducting our businesses. Developers are, are equally, yeah. you know, sort of. Just, what is technology though? It's just change, right? Like it, the whole industry seems like a little bit, I came from the tech industry. And when I first came from technology into real estate, it seemed slow and yeah. it seemed like a bunch of uh, old fat guys, just like making tons of money and just like things how they are. And I felt you finally nailed the uh, <laughs> man on the streets impression of real estate developers. Yeah. That's where we started. <laughs> totally. And it felt like coming from tech, uh, operating a different cadence and stuff. It felt yeah. easy to be successful. Yeah. Um, so let's challenge a couple of conventions. So let's say you said, let's sell a project without a sales center. Uh, I think it is possible, but it would look something like this. It would look like um, either a technology virtual oriented thing, maybe in a, in somebody's boardroom, something on a screen. If there's a little bit of in-person interaction, it could be that at sort of virtually no cost. Um, and we could absolutely sell 65% of a project that way. The, the consequence though would be, uh, sure we'd save on the sales center, but the, the people that bought that way would be very forward looking, very shrewd investor types that would expect for buying that way that they would get a bit of a discount, yeah. you know? So, so that would be how that would go. And so 65% of the building is sold at a, at a discount from where it could have been sold with a, with a presentation center. Not paid for a presentation center. Kind of, yeah. you know, that's the problem. And then, and then there's no sales center and then you build the thing, you sell the last 35%. But then the other element is you're hoping that the the value of the homes of the last 35% is more than what you pre-sold a long time and ago. And you still don't have a PC. Yeah, and there's never been a PC, but the reality of pre-sale is that the market will pay a higher price, price for a pre-sale home than they will for a comparable home in the same neighborhood that's built. Or close to closing home, yeah. 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 And the reason for that is that every pre-sale buyer is bullish on the market. Expect appreciation. Yeah, they do. And they, they, they think that the real estate that they're buying is going to be worth more in four years. And they're usually right. Yeah. Um, so they pay a premium. Uh, they like not completing. Uh, they like the leverage that comes from the return on their deposit for right. those years. So the presale mechanism and is, I've always thought, and we've been, what, we're 20, 30 years into it now, has been the most remarkable mechanism to get real estate built and to prevent from overbuilding because nothing gets built unless it's achieved the necessary sales penetration. I think it's a fantastic tool. I worry that, you know, in a cycle like we're in now, if there's failures um, and it seems like purchases are getting gypped because their home didn't go ahead and they get their money back and now they don't have a choice or nobody's building, that, that somehow that pre-sale regime could be brought to an end and, or, or, neutered so that like it is in the US where you can't collect a meaningful deposit that, that really binds anybody to anybody else. 
I worry about that because it's it's been such a great tool. And, and you know, you see markets where pre-sales um, are not meaningful because they're, they're not adequately secured with a deposit or they're not permitted at all, where you'll, you'll get overbuilding because the developers don't know when to stop, right? So the pre-sale is a test, literally. It's totally. Yeah. I mean, so, and, and, and it's a test for the bank. Uh, it's a test for the developer and, and it just doesn't move ahead. I mean, you know, you may get the op project that doesn't go ahead, but you don't build a bunch of stuff that, that doesn't have buyers. So I think that we all, we all need to make sure that whoever, you know, back to government again, anybody starts monkeying around with that, uh, understands how, what a, what a great tool it is to, um, and that these, again, these buyers, these speculators are actually helping with the orderly formation of housing getting it going on time, not getting it. And yet at the same time, not getting it overbuilt. Yeah. So I think we're, we're kind of have this unique kind of golden goose of, of the presale model. Right. And it's, and it's adequately regulated too. Like we talked about Redmond, we talked about how you can't delay too long and you can't hold a purchaser at ransom forever on buying a unit. I, I think we're at a pretty good, I mean, sometimes the Redmond goes a bit too far real estate on market act, but um, I think it's a great mechanism for, for, you know, control of, of, of development of product. Well, it makes sense in any industry that there is a testing type phase yeah. to it, right? Mm-hmm. That's before something's brought to market. You see the car companies doing it now. That's a huge change. Like when was pre-sales a big deal in the auto industry? And how do they do that by, by making, by these pre-orders, you oh, know, like the new, especially the new products, like the new electrics. Yeah. 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 The new electrics and stuff. It's all pre-order. I've got a electric um, motorcycle on pre-order, like everything, that's brought to market now in the auto industry that's new and innovative is pre-sold. Yeah, it's true. And it's cool. It's yeah. a test. They, they, they measure, it's only a $250 fully refundable deposit. So it's a much less accurate yeah. measure, but they're still doing it. Well, some of them are higher too. Like some of them yeah. are, you know, 15 or two, I guess the no, Cybertruck Cybertruck hasn't hit its pre-sale target yet. <laughs> no. Are, are we ever going to see that? No, I think they've hit it 10 times over and no, we're never going to see yeah. it. It's, I've literally given up. It's embarrassing to even talk about it anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, that's never going to happen. Yeah. I've also got the other one, but anyways, whatever it's, uh, it is absolutely good for the real estate industry. I personally hope it doesn't end not just for selfish reasons, but there's, you said earlier that the, some of the, many of the people that do the best from these projects are the buyers. They really do. They really do. And I'm so happy for them because it's such an easy entry point. I firmly yeah. believe that the best place for Canadians to build wealth is in, is in real estate. Certainly it's a, it's a principal home. residence. It's a tax exempt, 100%. It's the only tax exempt investment that you can make. Yeah. And I, I think as a developer, you know, wanting to, to use that pre-sale model to, to, to lubricate and, 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 and de-risk our business, you know, we need to leave money on the table for those buyers. We need to give them an opportunity to feel that they're going to be rewarded for the risk they take. Right. Yeah. And uh, projects that do that, 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 that come on with a good competitive price, fair price for what they're selling. They, they always seem to do well. Yeah. What about these developers that are starting to, I've heard about uh, some, none of our clients, but I've heard about some that are putting in escape clauses or adjustment price adjustments based on construction costs changing. Have you heard of this? I think it's a, I've certainly thought of doing it a number of times. I, I, I think, you know, there is any number of contracts out there in the world, like labor contracts, for instance, where uh, wages are tied to an increase in uh, a third, a third party reference or a CPI or whatever. I think that, um, you know, the idea of having a pre-sale contract where, you know, you're in an appreciating market where the purchaser has all the benefits of an upside in valuation. Um, 
in order to have pre-sales keep working, we may have to have those those elements. For instance, if you had a clause that said, uh, you know, we're allowed to, if, if, if construction prices go up more than 10%, we're allowed to increase your purchase price 3% or 4%. So there's a sharing of the burden and it's not a complete indemnity for the developer, but it recognizes that there are real challenges to, to have to go to third parties to build a building and that if the costs go, go up too much, you know, everybody should be involved in that because it's a, it's, um, you know, the, the general pattern has been that developers absorb all the costs, all the pain of cost increase and develop and, and, and purchasers don't absorb any of it. And usually the condominium is worth equal to or more than the contract price. Very few instances where it's worth less. Right. So I, I think that we'll see some of that. And are those going to be enforceable provisions? You know, they've, they'll be challenged if they're put in. Someone will challenge it at some point and the courts will determine if it's an enforceable provision makes me uncomfortable because buyers want certainty you know they yeah. want the price to be that's why pre-sale works because the price that is on the contract is the price they're going to pay no matter what they can lock in their their uh, mortgage yeah. payments their mortgage rates and and with that certainty they will buy and to the degree that there's less certainty they're just less likely to buy yeah but what if the profit was capped you know what if i think there's an opportunity for a developer um, not reliance, maybe this is an opportunity for a new developer to, to have a cost plus model. Cause I think the public thinks that there's a lot more profit in real estate than what there really yeah. is. And if a developer was open about, you know, we're going to do this project and the price is ultimately going to be cost plus 12%, uh, a buyer would lay down 60 grand for a deposit on one of those homes and, and expect the, the price to, at the end of the day, to be within a range that is quite audited. Yeah. And open. I mean, it, it's. Conceptually, it sounds good and fair and transparent. I think the the whole issue would be, you know, verification and determination. So many ways to show profit and loss, and so many fine grained details that could go into that. So like, many ways to game it. Yeah, there'd yeah. be too much gaming of it, and I think there'd be a lack of of trust about it. it but it'll be interesting to see if the, if any of these inflationary clauses do, you know, work their way into contracts, and if people, I mean, it, you know, you, what, you know, what could happen is if developers won't go ahead. Um, because of all the things we've been talking about, costs and interest rates and so on, and there's a real scarcity developing, and there's an even increased likelihood of strong appreciation because of lack of supply, maybe those purchasers will have to realize that um, it's buy something with some adjustment provisions or buy nothing and not participate because there won't be projects offered. It may just be that there's so much volatility now that that transferring some of that volatility to the ultimate user is is just an inevitable outcome now you know it's not unlike it's happening down the chain in the industry like you'll now especially it was more so when things were super hot in 2022 but you would have a rebar contractor come to you for the tower okay and say okay here's my price to buy and place the rebar however the steel portion of the price is just today's number and your price will be whatever it is and i'll bring you the invoices for the steel and we recently signed a rebar contract where if the price goes um up or down more than of steel goes up or down more than five percent if it goes up six percent we have to pay that guy that one percent oh so he'll and if it goes a five percent yeah range, but that's and, it. and if it goes down five percent for him we get nothing back but if it goes down 6%, we get a percent back. Oh. So that's already happening through the assembly chain of, of, of the way real estate is, 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 is paid for and built. 
So you can see those kind of things making their way all the way to the consumer, to the end end customer. Yeah. That's complicated. Yeah. That's the beauty of the free market system because a developer will do that. Then two will do that. Then the, the buyers properly informed will, will make their own decisions. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that the, the Redma, if, if anybody does that, or as soon as they figure out what's happening, you know, on a disclosure statement, they make you put certain things in the contract, like on page one, right? Yeah, really. I'm sure if there was a, a price adjustment clause, they would mandate that that be like the first thing that, that you yeah. say, right? Yeah, for sure. It yeah. should be that way. And it need to be it, like, it, it, it really shouldn't be tied to the developer's actual cost. It should be tied to some outside index. index. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's interesting. I still don't like the idea. It makes me uncomfortable. Again, just around the certainty thing. But um, if it is the solution to an industry problem, then then so be it. it Are you me sure it's not? It's not like in page ninety-seven of the contract in two-point font. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm quite sure. At least on our projects, but are, there are some developers doing this, and I've heard of it, and we just haven't personally. It may not be enforceable as well. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. It'll be tested. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the approach some developers take with realtors and their commissions, um, where some real, some developers will pay the commission to the brokerage and they will put language in there saying that we'll give you half an advance and then half at completion of the project in four years. But if the project doesn't complete, guess what? You're giving us back the advanced portion. And with that, those teeth in that contract, some brokerages are not advancing the, those those advanced commissions to their realtors because oh. they're afraid their realtors will disappear. Well, they'll disappear over four years. They won't even be a realtor anymore. They'll have lost touch and there could be tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars that are just are gone. Yeah. And now the developer is asking for it back. Yeah. Um, but again, the, the free market system takes care of that. Developers that do it that way. Um, have slightly less realtor support, obviously, from realtors that yeah. they don't want to wait four years for all their money. Yeah, and uh, developers aren't doing it or getting more. So yeah, it'll be the same way with this with this other sort of evolution yeah. in the price. Yeah, but I think yeah, the presale model is going to come under some significant challenge in the next few years, just because of of that volatility on the supply side end, and how can developers protect themselves against? How can they meet their presale target but still have some? some ability to get more if they need it. It's, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if those become quite common clauses. Yeah. How the consumers react to them is, yeah, it'll be just interesting to see what happens. It'll, it'll all come down to how much they want to buy something. It will. Yeah, it will. And I got lots more ideas about it. If you are advocating and if there's anything I can do to help okay. or brainstorm any type of solutions, anything related to just the pre-sale part of it, um, be sure to reach out and ask. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your vision and all of your hard work for our industry. And uh, thanks for your and, time and interest. Yeah, thanks for coming. It was fun.